Well, hey there, New City Church. My name is Nate Bush. Could be the lead pastor here. If you're joining us online or in person, I want to say welcome. I hope you feel at home here. Uh, We always say at New City that we are imperfect people. That means at New City there are no perfect people allowed. And if you're in the category of imperfection, uh, you will find New City be a, a safe place to be. Now, if you've been watching online gatherings for some time, Uh, you will recognize a slightly different format, a good one, but a slightly different format. Uh, And the reason for that is we are broadcasting live now. That's what we're working towards is live broadcast. It's going to do a couple things for us. One is it's going to teach us how to be patient, okay? And so we're going to have to learn how to be patient as there may be a hiccup here or there in the live uh, online broadcast as we get really good at this. But I can tell you the team has been working really hard on being really good at this. But another thing this is going to do is going to bring us together. And that's what I really hope will happen is that you'll feel a sense of togetherness on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings as you are w- witnessing a live broadcast. And so I hope that will help you to feel like you're a part of things uh, in a deeper way. Speaking of being a part of things, we've got a new series coming up called Relationship Goals. Now that new series is, a, is going to be a really powerful series. It starts November 1st. And I'm telling you about it now because I really want you to invite a friend. You really need to invite some friends uh, to Relationship Goals. This series is going to be really uh, powerful. It's three weeks digging in deep on issues related to uh, singleness, marriedness. Uh, any, really anybody who has a relationship with any other human being needs to uh, be a part of this series. And so I just want to encourage you to invite some friends. Now, we are launching a new service time uh, for Relationship Goals. Now, we've, we've been listening and trying to sort of get some feedback from people from our church and going, hey, well, how can we better serve you? Uh, because of coronavirus and limited restrictions and the limitations in our space, we are currently not having children's ministry and student ministry during our Sunday morning services. And so a lot of our parents are choosing, and I understand that completely, uh, to watch online. But we've heard from you that sometimes the online broadcast on Sunday morning at 9.15 or 11 a.m. or even 6.30 uh, is uh, a non-optimal time as you got kiddos running around the house and it's really, it's really hard for you to, uh, to do both church and parenting at the same time. So we're adding an 8.30 p.m. Sunday night service online. Now that 8.30 p.m. service is for you so that you can put the kiddos to bed, get together and watch this series and all the other series to come after, but this series specifically. Uh, I know that coronavirus has been hard, I know that this has been challenging, and a lot of relationships have been stretched. And so especially I'm speaking to you, if you have a young family at home, make this a priority. Start marketing your calendar, 8.30 at night, Sunday nights. We're going to tune into church service, and we're going to grow together. So make that a priority. Another, another thing I want to say, uh, just one more kind of an announcement before we get into the message today, is the New City of the Drive-In event is uh, a significant event for us. Now, New City Church rented out the the, the uh, Balloon Fiesta drive-in movie theater. Like We paid to rent it out. So that when you invite a friend and they pay $25 per car, every dollar, that 25 bucks, goes to Shine School Partnership. Why? Well, because you know, of all the suffering of COVID, uh, the, the, 
Those who are suffering the most are our teachers and our students. The Shine School Partnership partners churches and schools for the common good. And we believe that this is one way we can make a significant impact coming out of COVID is by funding Shine and making sure Shine has, has the money needed to advance during a time when the need is critical. So uh, you can invite friends to see uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse on October 22nd. Uh, invite your friends' friends. We invite everybody you know. Share our social media posts. Share the emails you receive from me. Uh, get as many people there as possible because the more people, the more good we can do in our city. All right, so now on to the message. We're in a series called Godless. And I've been saying throughout the series that Esther raises a question. And the question Esther raises over and over again is, who is really in power? I mean, who's really in power? Uh, you could say this, that all the quote-unquote coincidences uh, in Esther, they've been stacked like dominoes by an invisible hand, and they're all about to fall. That's where we're at in the text this week. You're going to see all these coincidences are stacked like dominoes, and they've been stacked like dominoes over a series of years, and they're going to fall, and it's going to reveal God's secret hand at work. Uh, to put that in, uh, in, in, in sort of an illustration form, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters of Esther, covers nine years of time. But our study today, and if you're following along in a Bible app or you've got a Bible on your lap, you can open it up into Esther chapter 5, and we're studying 5, 6, and 7 this week. Now, 1, 2, and 3 chapters, 1, 2, and 3 covers nine years. 5, 6, and 7 covers two days, right? Two nights, really. And these two nights are extraordinarily important. That's why so much time in the recording of these events is given uh, in our study. Now, before we dive into those chapters, I just want to say a few things. One is the answer to who is really in power matters. The answer to the question, who is really in power, matters. Now, a lot of us have been going through challenging, you know, this is a challenging time, right? It's easy to say. In fact, I think you're tired of hearing it. I'm tired of hearing it. Uh, but let's be honest. I mean, the frustration levels in our society are at an all-time high. And sometimes we need to go to the Bible to look for language, to express what we're really going through. And so Psalm 73, this kind of expresses what a lot of us are going through. Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant. Have you ever felt that way? Envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, just looking at the wicked prospering and the arrogant, and just what's going on? For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I mean, doesn't it seem like sometimes in society the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. You could say this describes much of the current condition in the world, but also describes the human condition throughout history. I mean, this is recorded in the Psalms a very long time ago. When you flip a few verses later in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, verse 17, until... I went into the sanctuary of God 
Then I discern their end. Another way of saying what he's saying here is, and then I saw the power beyond all powers. Truly, you set them in slippery places, the psalmist writes. You make them fall to ruin. And then I saw that what seems like, when it seems like certain people are in power, there is a power beyond the power. And so in our narrative today, our text today, time has slowed. Time has slowed to almost a standstill so you don't miss who's really in power. Listen again to the way the psalmist speaks. He says, I went into the sanctuary of God. I discerned their end. You set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. What's he saying? This is what he's saying. There are rules that govern life and human flourishing. And they are rules that are enforced. He's saying there are predictable rules to what brings about human flourishing. And those rules, when violated, those violations are enforced. To to just dig in a little bit here, pride destroys human flourishing. Pride destroys human flourishing. Uh, Look at Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Or in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you can see pride destroys human flourishing, but humility courageously provides for human flourishing. That's actually what you're going to see today in the text. Esther in humility being courageous and providing the opportunity for human flourishing. I want to say a word about humility just briefly. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less. Humility is not being down on you, but being up on God and and really considering the needs of other people. Humility is a fruit, really, of a Jesus-centered life. And you can't can't get true gospel humility unless Jesus is at your center. You know, Jesus, when he talked about the, sort of the essence of Christianity, the essence of the Bible, the essence of like, Christian morality, he, he defines it, distills it to two main ideas. In fact, he was asked, to, what, like, what's the greatest commandment? Like, how do, we, how do we see what it means to live out God's will in this world? And Jesus says the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And in verse 31, the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus says, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, it's humility. Thinking not about yourself, but worshiping God and worshiping the other, having an other's centered mind because Jesus freed your mind from self-approval seeking and all the rest of the nonsense that your mind is always preoccupied with. To put it another way, to put it kind of in contemporary language, language that may be more relevant to your social media feed, if your Christian view doesn't produce an active humility that inspires the love of God and neighbor, it is not a Christian view. Now you can present that as a Christian view, but if you're Christian view doesn't elevate God, it isn't inspired because of the love of the other, then that Christian view isn't all that Christian. To, to push in, are here, an earthly view says something like this, your life for me. It's always looking at the self-interest first. But the Christian view is my life for you 
It's, it's my life for your life. It's always looking for your interest. Christians can do that because they see the power beyond the powers. As the psalmist reminded us, he said, I walked into the sanctuary of God and then my eyes were open. I saw it. I saw God was really in charge. But when you, when you see the powers of this world, you see the rich prospering and the poor getting poor, sometimes it's easy to feel like things are out of control. You see, if you don't see the power that is above all powers, it will profoundly affect your mood. It'll affect how you feel. See, self-centered worldly powers produce fear and anxiety why? Because their interests are naturally, because <laughs> uh, uh, their interests are naturally elevated above your own interest. Like when you see the powerful exercising their power in, in such a way that's protecting their own self-interest, all you can feel about that is anxiety and fear. And in fact, I would say that a predominant emotion right now in the American landscape is one of fear and anxiety because it appears as though those who are in power are self-interested and they aren't looking after me and my interest. On the con- <laughs> in contrast, if you believe there was a supernatural power above the powers, and that supernatural power above the powers was willing to sacrifice his self-interest for your good, a power beyond all powers. And and that power beyond all powers was self-sacrificially loving. If you believed that was true, you would have peace and courage. Because you know that 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 power, that God, was on your side. Well, the story of Esther and the, the verses we will study today is illustrative of the story of humanity. It is the story of a God who specializes in divine reversals. God specializes in divine reversals. I want to define divine reversals for you here this way. One way to define it is when a divine reversal happens, the proud fall and the humble rise. The proud fall and the humble rise. In fact, you see that in the narrative of Esther. So let's do a little bit of a setup here. If, you, if you're new to this story and you're picking up in chapter 5, I'm going to give you the, just the, the Reader's Digest version of how we got here. Uh, there's a king, his name is Xerxes, he's very proud. He spends a, a lot of time in the early chapter just proving how proud he is of all that he owns. That king, in his pride, tries to have his queen, uh, Vashti, uh, brought out in front of all of these men, and he wanted to display her beauty. She says no. That throws the kingdom into uh, an upheaval, and the net result is one of his servants says, you should throw a contest to see who pleases the king the most, and it's not really a contest where people choose to compete in. Uh, A notice goes out across Persia, Virgins are taken from their families, forced to be concubines in uh, the king's service. Esther wins the quote-unquote contest. Esther is in a unique position uh, to warn the king because her cousin Mordecai, who also raised her as a daughter, cues her in on an assassination plot. 
king's life is saved. That's an important point for today's story. After the king's life is saved, he appoints Haman to be kind of the prime minister, but Haman's a villain and he's an enemy of the Jews. He dislikes Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow down to him and worship him as everybody else has been commanded to do. Mordecai won't do it. And so he not only sees fit to try to kill Mordecai, he convinces the king to issue genocide for all the Jews. The order for genocide has gone out. And we studied last week, Mordecai pleads with Esther uh, to embrace her narrative, to believe that God is a redeemer God, and to go in and to plead for God's people. And that's where we find ourselves today in the narrative. You see, Esther is no longer a glorified concubine when we see her in our narrative today. She has become a skillful queen. A divine reversal is afoot. Look at the verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Actually, we'll read through verse 3. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne. Now, we learned last week that you don't just do this, approach the king because you could die. And if he doesn't put his scepter out uh, to kind of grant you the privilege of being in his presence, he could order your death. So she is taking a huge risk here. She dresses up as the queen, not as a concubine. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance of the palace, and when the king saw Queen Esther, and this is really important, the narrator, the narrator is letting us know, Esther has become queen. She's embraced her identity as queen. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. He held up to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So now she is not condemned to death. And the story is put afoot. Is she going to be able to convince the king to withdraw the order or somehow address the order to bring about genocide of the Jews? The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Now, Esther does something clever here in the narrative. She says, I have a banquet. Would you come and would Haman come to my banquet? And she invites him to a banquet. In fact, she throws two banquets. Esther throws two feasts in what appears to be a calculated political move that accomplishes two ends. It's hard to know she was trying to accomplish these two ends, but it seems as though the narrator has been tipping the hat that Esther is a skillful politician. And so at least one of the ends here is to inflate the, the proud ego of Haman. And that, in fact, it does work because he comes to the first feast and divided the second one and his ego just is so inflated his head gets huge. But the second thing is, is it, it grows the favor of Xerxes. He asks her here when she approaches him, What's, what is it you want? You can have up to half the kingdom. The end of the first feast, he asks the, the, the question again. At the end of the third feast, he asks the question the third time. And so she gets King Xerxes to, to invite from her her request three times, securing for her uh, his favor. What we'll see here in the narrative is Haman's self-centeredness. His self-centered and emotional pride is quickly contributing to his humiliating end. And so you see that pride comes before the fall. Uh, what the narrator Nestor is doing is let us look behind the curtain to see the power behind all the powers. It seems like Haman's been in power all this time. He's been able to, to order genocide of the Jews. And now what's, what's happening in the storyline? And Haman went out that day joyful. He'd been invited to a feast and invited back again and glad of heart. 
But when he saw Haman, when, sorry, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that neither, he neither rose nor trembled before him. Now remember, Mordecai is at the king's gate because he is mourning of sackcloth and ashes because he has been weeping and openly protesting this order of genocide. But Mordecai is seen by Haman, but Haman doesn't see Mordecai weeping and mourning. He just sees somebody refusing to bow down. He has no compassion or empathy. And so he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. He went home, and he, he, he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Now, and Haman <laughs> recounted to them the splendor of his riches. Now, think about this, right? He throws a party, and he goes, have I told you lately how rich I am? <laughs> this guy is, so what's, what the narrator is doing here, by the way, is he's being humorous. He's going, look, look at this fool who thinks he's really in power. So Haman recounted to them his, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had been uh, advanced, uh, how he advanced him above all the officials and servants of the kingdom. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited to buy her together with the king. And so he's come to the first feast, now he's been invited to the second feast, and his head is just absolutely inflated. But then he says this, and this is great insight into Haman's mentality. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Now Christopher Ash does something here unique, and, and I think it's important to note. Uh, Christopher Ash says, usually for Hebrew storytelling, we are given, uh, we're, we're not given any insight into sort of people's emotional state of being. But here we are given an insight into Haman's heart. And that's unusual for the storytelling of Hebrew narratives. Why, why is this notable? Well, Haman is a kind of self-centered leader that leads from the gut in order to preserve his emotional well-being at any cost. And you can see here he's emotional, emotionally volatile. It seems that his wife is tuned into his you know, you know, emotional volatile state. And in verse 14 of Esther 5, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet, be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he, held, and he had the gallows made. And so he makes this just absurdly high spike that he wants to impale Mordecai on. This is... I mean, again, the narrator's going, do you see how absurd all this is? And even his friends and his family are like, he's, got, he's gone mad. Let's get his joy back. Let's, he's going to get his joy back by killing somebody. I mean, this is how mad Haman is. But I want you to notice something about what this storyteller is telling us as the narrative is unfolding. That increasing self-centeredness corresponds with de decreasing empathy. That as self-centeredness increases, you can predict a decrease in empathy. And th there is no empathy in the heart of this genocidal maniac, Haman. So I, I just want to challenge you. Okay, I just want to challenge you. Evaluate yourself right now. Just evaluate yourself. How, 
how empathetic are you? Because when empathy is absent, you can know pride is present. When empathy is absent, you can know with certainty that pride is present. And so we are asking again the question in the narrative, who is really, who's really in power? See, all of the quote-unquote coincidences have been, have been stacked like dominoes by an invisible hand, the invisible hand of God. And they're all about the fall. And Haman doesn't see it. <laughs> he doesn't see it. He still feels like he's in power. In fact, he plans to go to the king in the morning to, 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 so that he can enjoy the queen's feast more fully. He's going to go to the king in the morning and demand that Mordecai be, a, be, be impaled on the stake that he's prepared that's 75 feet high. It's just all obscene and absurd. So, what is the invisible hand of God doing at this moment? Working. That's what the invisible hand of God is doing. On that night, read that, chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the night before the second feast that Esther had throws, the king could not sleep. Why? It's, in Esther's language, coincidence. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. In other words, he, was, he ordered that, his own personal history brought to him so he could read it, and uh, apparently this was like watching a, you know, Netflix at night to go to sleep. He couldn't sleep. He puts on Netflix, tell me the stories of my, of my past. And the story that was brought up was a story of when Mordecai told Esther about the assassination plot that saved his life. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now, this is odd, by the way. Because Persian kings were known for showing honor. That was a part of the culture. And the fact that Mordecai wasn't honored at the time is notable. Why wasn't he notified at the time? Why is this moment, the moment that the king is sleepless? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So it seems we're at the point in the narrative where we're starting to see the dominoes have been stacked. Esther is where she is for such a time as this. Mordecai saves the king's life and is an honor, but suddenly the king just is sleepless at the right moment, right before Mordecai is to be ultimately killed because of Haman's conniving sort of scheming. But the night before he's to be killed by Haman's scheming, the king can't sleep, happens to coincidentally find the record of when Mordecai saved his life, and then we see that the divine reversal is on its way. The proud fall in divine reversals and the humble rise. The weak are made strong in divine reversals and the strong are made weak. And you'll see here in the text the powerful Haman is joyfully looking forward to killing the weak and mourning Mordecai the Jew. And I should say Haman is quote-unquote powerful and Mordecai is quote-unquote weak. But Haman's pride will be the cause of Haman's humiliation. 
This is a kind of a dark comedy, <laughs> if you will. Listen to what happens. So the king, sleepless, he's got to find a way to honor Mordecai. That's what's on his mind. And the king's young men told him, hey, Haman's there. He's standing in the court. The king said, oh, let him come in. Maybe Haman can help me figure out how to honor Mordecai. Only Haman doesn't know that. You'll see that right here in the verse. So Haman came in. The king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And then Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Do you see the depth of his arrogance? He's like, oh, the king must be talking about me. And so Haman says, well, put the king's robe on him and put him on the king's horse because what does the robe represent? But the, the power of the gods. And he goes, you know, I, everybody's already commanded to bow down before me, but what if they associated me with a god? And so Haman, Haman was, not, was not content until he was honored as a god. And this is, my friends, kind of a dark comedy. It's dark because it's going to end in Haman's death, but it is comical that he proposes this absurd thing to the king which is borderline most commentators say treasonous what he's asking for and then the king said to Haman can you just you can just can you just imagine the look on that arrogant pompous man Haman's face after just recommending this thing that he thought was intended for him the king says hurry Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who, who sits at the king's gate, leaving out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Do you see what God has done? He's taken a man who was in sackcloth and ashes, mourning and weeping, and he, he's done a divine reversal. And he's taken a man who has clothed himself in all kinds of honor, and he's humbled him to be the one leading around this formerly humbled Mordecai to this exalted king-like state. I just want to remind you that God specializes in divine reversals. He specializes in them. Listen to Psalm, listen to Psalm 30, 11. Just listen to it. David says, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You, you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give Thanks to you forever. You have turned my mourning to dancing. You know, I, I, I just got to say, do you need a divine reversal today? Because our, our God specializes in divine reversals. He specializes in turning our, our mourning into dancing. That's what he does. So I just want to encourage you, friend. You are free to be weak when you worship a God who's strong. 
You're free to be weak. When you worship a God who's strong because you know that God specializes in flipping the tables. What's a divine reversal? A divine reversal is when the, the, the proud fall and the humble rise. It's when the weak are made strong and the strong are made weak. Here's another thing. It's when the least likely become the most likely. This is a divine reversal. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, verse 12. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, <laughs> and with his head covered. I mean, this guy is in shame. Now, I want you to see, this is, this is the humor, okay? This is the humor of it all. Remember his wife recommended that he build this 75-foot spike to spike Mordecai on, that that might turn his, his current rage and wrath towards Mordecai into joyful singing, like she gave him this recommendation. So Haman comes home, he's so angry, you'll not believe what happened at work today. Mordecai got the promotion and I got demoted, you will not believe what happened today. <laughs> Haman told his wife Zeresh all, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, now listen, listen to what they said. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. <laughs> so it seems as though like his wife and his friends are believers in the Jewish God because they're saying, oh, you should have said he was a Jew. <laughs> because if he's a Jew, you're, 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 you're doomed, Mordecai. <laughs> it's like, uh, you can imagine like, how that filled this already pompous man full of even more rage when his wife was like, oh, did you say he was a Jew? <laughs> what the narrator is reminding us is that victory is secure for God's covenant people. And when you read Romans 8, 37, this is what you read. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What you read is that we are the recipients of a divine reversal. You see, the proud enemy of God's covenant people is humiliated and he is defeated. In verse 2 of chapter 7, the scripture says, And on the second day, as they're drinking wine after the feast, this is after Esther's second feast, the king again said, this is for the third time, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what, what, is, what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. I think this is just an idiom, but he's just saying, Esther, I'm here for you. What do you want? And here the dominoes fall and they crush the enemy of the Jews. And then Queen Esther answered, I, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. She's very clever here in her request. She invites the king into her narrative. And the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he 
And where is he? Who has dared to do this? Now remember, this feast is for Haman and King Ahasuerus, or otherwise known as King Xerxes. And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked man, this wicked man, Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. <laughs> Just like that, the dominoes fall. This is truly a dark comedy. But it's intended to raise a question. But by whom has Haman ultimately been defeated? By whom? Who set the dominoes up to fall just like this? Like, who did it? Why, why did Vashti say no? Why did Esther become queen? Why, why has Mordecai happened to overhear the plot to assassination the king? Why is it written in the king's history? Why is Mordecai not honored for it? Why does the king have a sleepless night on that night? Why, why, why does Mordecai just happen to be recognized coincidentally on the day he's supposed to be killed by Haman? Why all of these coincidences? Quote, unquote, coincidences. Where did they all come from? Who was the divine hand putting them all in place? What's interesting is the comedy gets more comical. It also gets darker. In verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in the attendance of the, on the uh, uh, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, "Hey uh, king, by the way, <laughs> the talk of the town is a 75-foot monstrous gallows that had been created so that Haman could put Mordecai on. And the king said, hang him on that. Is that not just weird, poetic justice written to the narrative? So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. So this narrative, this narrative of quote-unquote coincidences, this narrative where the name of God is never mentioned, it, it's inviting us to look closely at the story. Here's what we're looking for. The hidden hand of God. And at some point in reading this narrative, we have to ask ourselves, and you need to ask yourself, is God at work in my life? Where, where is God at work in my life? How do I see His work in my life? Like, Holy Spirit, reveal it to us. Like, reveal it to us. I believe that God is a working God. He does work in our lives. And sometimes we, we say that this is just a coincidence. So I want to say pray for insight into God's work and for, and for God to work. Because if you are <laughs> in need of a divine reversal, I want to remind you that our God is the God of divine reversals. Let me illustrate that for you. 
in a very significant way, I am in need, right? I, I, I am in need of a divine reversal. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And my, my sin has separated me from God. But my sin also separates me from the people in my life that I love. Because sin's consequences, separating me from God and separating me from other people and really, truly working to separate me from me. It's, 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 it's undoing all of the human relationships that matter to me. And I can't overcome my sin on my own. I just can't do it. Sin's a power at work within me and I can try to stop sinning, but I just simply can't. And you can't either. In fact, I'm not the only one in need of a divine reversal. You're in need of a divine reversal too. And, and by God's grace, we've been offered a divine reversal, the most epic divine reversal. Let me tell you about it. Jesus lived the life you and I could not live because sin is a power we cannot overcome. But he overcame it. He lived perfectly and sinlessly. And as a sinless and perfect sacrifice, he died on the cross for all of my sins and all of my shortcomings and everything that's separating me from me and me from my friends and my family, the people I love and care about, and all the things that are separating me from God, he redeemed. He paid the price for. And so the divine reversal is the perfect became imperfect for me on the cross. He was buried in the tomb and he rose again. He conquered my sin and death and he gave me his righteousness. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I am, I am not marked by my sin. I'm marked by his righteousness. And that, my friends, is a divine, a divine reversal. When you get over to chapter 8, you see this rippling effect of divine reversals. On that day, King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. Isn't that a divine reversal? The enemy of the Jews... And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, that he raised her as a father. The king took off his signet ring, that's the one he gave to Haman to seal the deal on genocide of the Jews. He took off his signet ring, which, had, he, which had ta- he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman, divine reversal. So what is a divine reversal? Well, divine reversal is when the proud fall and the humble rise, when the weak are made strong and the strong are made weak, and when the least likely become the most likely. So I'm going to ask again, where do you need a divine reversal in your life? I, I want to encourage you. Stop trying to do what only God can do. Like, where do you need a divine reversal in your life? Are you trying to to do what only God can do? I mean, you need a divine reversal. You need the divine to engage. So let me encourage you. Let your weakness be an offering that you may invite God's strength into your life. Let me just tell you how you do this. You go to God and you say, God, I'm weak. I can't do this on my own. I'm in need of your help. I sub- I, I, you confess like John the Baptist, I must become less, you must become greater. And I can tell you, my friends, that God, 
God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he, he will lift you up. My prayer this week for you has been that you would hear this message and that you would identify a couple things. One is you'd see God's divine hand at work in your life. And coincidences would be interpreted as God's sovereign movement. But also I, I prayed that if there's an area of your life where you, you need intervention, divine intervention, that you would feel encouraged to have the strength to, to, to just invite God into your story, invite God into your narrative. And so my friend, I hope you'll do that. You know, the series is called Godless. It's actually called Faith in a Godless Time. It is very difficult sometimes to have faith in a godless time. And stories like Esther help us, help us to have faith. So at New City, you know, we end our messages with three movements, generosity, community, and prayer. And those are just bold movements of faith for us. They're, they're trusting in God, putting faith in Him. And the more godless the time, the more generous we need to be. And so I want to encourage you to be generous. You can give on the app. If you're in service today, you can give in the boxes in the back. You certainly can give online. I'd love for you to be able to, to participate in the generosity of New City. Obviously, we do things that impact our city and impact those who are, who are poor and struggling because we believe in the, that God is a God of divine reversals. And I'm praying for a divine reversal for kids and education in New Mexico. And if you want to amen that, then man, support New City and also come out to the drive-in, um, the New City to the drive-in because that's going to be a great event to be able to bring about God's divine plan. You know, we, we celebrate communion every week. We celebrate during in service during the two songs that follow the message. And, uh, but at home, you can, you can also take advantage of this time. Get some bread, some grape juice in the fridge. Get some wine, some crackers, whatever you want to do here. But I, I would encourage you to reenact the gospel of communion. Remember Christ's body broken for you. His blood shed for you. This is a celebration of the divine reversal. He was wounded to bring about your healing. He was crushed for your iniquities so you might be free in Him and receive His righteousness. It's all about reversal. It's about reenacting that reversal. So break the bread. Take the cup. Remember Christ's blood shed for you. His, his body broken for you. And, and lastly, we use this time for prayer. And I encourage you earlier to pray. And I'm just going to pray boldly for you, but I invite you to join me in prayer. So as I pray, you pray. I pray along. Pray your own words, but pray along. And let's pray together. So, Father, I do pray for New City Church and for everybody listening today that you would help us to experience uh, this, this sort of divine insight into our own stories. That you would help us to see that there are things that we sometimes interpret as coincidences that show up. And, and because, you know, you, you, you do this through your Holy Spirit. You give us understanding of things that we don't understand. And you enlighten us. I just pray you to enlighten us that we'd see that you are sovereign God and you are sovereignly at work in our lives. And help us to see how we can participate in your work of renewal and in reversal. We praise you for being the God of divine reversals, the ultimate reversal of sin to righteousness in our lives. We thank you and praise you for that. But I, I know that there are some that are listening in today. There are some that are participating with us, with us in worship right now who are in need of a divine reversal. Holy Spirit, speak to them, encourage them. Call them out of their faithlessness. Give them faith, miraculously faith to trust you to bring about that reversal. Thank you. You're the God that turns, you know, you turn, you, you, you turn ashes into things that are beautiful. 
Thank you for taking our, our weakness and showing up and manifesting your strength. We praise you, Father. We praise you so much. Praise you for every, every time you've overcome our sin and you've given us not only Christ's righteousness, but you've whispered to us through the power of your Holy Spirit that we are beautiful and that the ugliness of our sin has been taken away. And I just praise you for that. Help us to experience that beauty, the beauty you've given to us, you've bestowed to us. We're going to sing, Father, to you. We're going to sing to you and we're going to praise you and, and I pray that as we do, that you receive that as an offering of our beauty uh, to worship you because you've, you, you've made us beautiful. We thank you. We thank you for that. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Love you.